Oh, thank you, worship team. Just love being led by people who love Jesus. They're all far cooler than I am. When they all walk off and I come up, the coolness factor just plummets. I don't know if you noticed that when, you, when that happened, but you know, they're, they're not just cool, gifted musicians. I love being led by people I know who I know love Jesus, who I have seen love Jesus with their lives. Every one of these musicians up here are way more than gifted musicians who have chops and are cool. They, they are godly people, and I love that. I love being led by people who actually believe deeply the things they're singing. And so, so I'm grateful for that, and that's what we long for here at Grace, lives of authenticity, of integrity, where the things we're saying and the things we believe are actually working themselves out in our daily lives. We want it to be real. We want all this to be real. It can so easily not be real. It, it can so easily, the Christian life, the religious thing we do, can so easily become mere external religiosity rather than something at the very core of our being and in our, of our life here. And I'm so grateful for how real it is here at Grace. I deeply love this church and, and the people here and, and for how real it is in times of joy, in times of pain. There is a, a true reality to God at work in our lives in Jesus. And so I hope you experienced that this morning very keenly and, and that everything we've been doing will lead to that. And most certainly what we're about to do now. So if you'd open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, if, if you'd like a Bible, they're always available in the back. Any ushers around? If anybody would like a Bible, you can just raise your hand. We're really going to be in this passage today. It would be very helpful to have a Bible in front of you if you need one. Pam would be happy to get you one. Um, and it, So if you just raise your hand if you need a Bible. We'll be in this. It will be helpful for you to have. Plus, it's good to know I'm not just making stuff up, isn't it? You can say, wait a second, that's not in here. That's really good to do because preachers can make stuff up. Um, and so you've got to make sure I'm not doing that. So 1 Peter 1, we're, we're preaching through this book, and I'm actually always already starting to become sad that we're so far through it, and it won't be that much longer before we threw this great book of 1 Peter. We preached through uh, the book of Mark before we dove into this, and it's highly likely that Mark got most of his information through Peter. And we get quite a picture of Peter in the book of Mark too. One of the motives for diving in the first Peter is because we get a glimpse of Peter after years of maturing in his relationship with Jesus. And he's a really different person. He's the same person in, in fundamental ways, but he's a different person when you contrast the Peter of the Gospels who's, who's he, he shoots his mouth off and he's bold and he boasts and he, he, he boasts about he'll never deny Jesus and a few hours later well sure enough he is and, and, and he's certainly got strengths but he's got glaring weaknesses too in the Gospel and he's not perfect when he writes the epistles but wow when you hear the maturity in Peter as he writes this letter the way he's grown uh, as we'll see today, he's calling us to lives of profound humility. And you want to say, well, Peter, 
you're the one who whipped out your sword and cut off Malchus's ear and, and we're taking matters into your own hands. It's amazing how much he's changed. And now he's saying, be humble-minded. Live at unity. It's just, some, husbands, treat your wives with, with honor and gentleness. He's so different. And there's great hope in that for me, that, that God's patient and we grow. Uh, and he's also teaching us timeless truths here. He's teaching us things that are making our lives real before God. That's what this passage is about. It's, it's making it real. It's the good life. This, this passage is about having the good life, and it's also about making it real. Real discipleship is what we're about to read. So 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll start in verse 8. Help us, Lord. Here we go. Finally, all of you, Let's pause there. Uh, he's, he's giving specific instructions to servants and wives and husbands and, and ways of relating. And now he gives a broadening preface. Now, now, some of these apply just to specific roles you may play. But, but here I'm talking to the church. I'm talking to you. If you're a Christian, this applies to you, all of you. This is not for the super disciple or the pastor or the one who's sort of at a different level. No, the Bible doesn't think that way. The Bible doesn't think in sort of these gradations of discipleship. It's, it's following Christ wholeheartedly, single-mindedly, or not. So he's saying all of you, uh, here's this picture of a true disciple of Jesus, a true Christian, and so therefore that applies to all of you who claim the name of Christ. All of you claim to be Christians, little Christ, you are called to this, all of you. And, and I'm, I'm going to read these, these traits, these attitudes, these dispositions, these characteristics of a true disciple, a true Christian. Please don't let them fly by. Let every one of them. Verse 8 is loaded with six character traits. And, and I believe that one or more of them are intended to land on you heavily this morning and lead to, to good change. So don't let them fly by. Ponder in a spirit-led way what God may be saying to you this morning. Finally, all of you, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, And a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. 
Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. All right, this passage is just loaded with with instruction, with convicting exhortation, with commands. And what I want you to realize is this passage is talking about the good life. (laughs) Did you see what it said when Peter starts uh, quoting Psalm 34? In verse 10, whoever desires to love life and see good days. Is that something you want? Do you want to love life? Isn't it amazing how some days it's easier to say that's true? Love life. There's some days you love life and some days not so much. There's some days you say, man, life is good. And some days, not so much. Some years, some decades, not so much. Now, what does the good life mean to you? When you hear that phrase, the good life, love in life, I will. I'll say when, my, when, we're, when we're doing things like when we went and got Isaac, we were, we were uh, what's that thing when you get in the, wow, the tube and you ride the thing down the thing? What's that called? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? What is it? What is it? Oh, yeah, an alpine slide. Yeah. They should call it a scabs all over your body slide, right? Um, you know, the alpine slides, we, we, they have one going down the Great Wall of China. How absurd is that? But we did it, boy. And, uh, and we went down that thing, and I'm saying, this is living, right? This is great. I mean, just affirming this. And, and when you hear that phrase, the good life, loving life, what do you think of? Well, many think of this, <laughs> right? I love, I love this, this company. I, I really do enjoy their, their products. Donna has a hat with a stick figure on a mountain bike, and it says, life is good. And I really like that one, too. Check it out. Got my Birkenstocks and my dog, and I got my guitar, and even the dog likes my music, right? And yeah, it's the good life, right? And how about this one? Woo! (laughs) Any golfers in here? Where are those golfers? Yeah, Mark, how often do you do do that pose very often? You do that one, that Tiger Woods? That's a Tiger Woods, right? Woo, not lately, right? (laughs) What pose do you do mostly, Mark, when you golf? Is throwing your club? Is that, is that yours? Would that be the bad life? Um, yeah, and I, I really do enjoy it. And I think recreation and the things we typically say when we say, man, life is good. And it, it's fine to include a glass of lemonade sitting on the beach or, or a hole-in-one or he's, he's got a putter there actually. But, uh, you know, it, I like that. That's good. God, we're told, gives us everything for us to enjoy. So please don't hear me being some killjoy here. But what we find in this passage that talks about our attitudes in the midst of persecution, 
being hated and opposed and reviled and, and maybe beaten even or, or killed. What is our attitude in the midst of that? See, the good life for Christians, yes, includes what we typically think of, but it also includes a way of viewing everything so that goodness then isn't dependent, loving life isn't dependent then on circumstances of ease. We can love life and affirm its depth of goodness in an even deeper way when we're responding to pain and suffering and even persecution from people who hate us. For Christians, these aren't the deepest pictures of the good life. Here's a picture of the good life from a Christian perspective. That's Paul and Silas in a Philippian jail. You can see the blood dripping off of them because before they were thrown in stocks and in, in jail, they were beaten. And you know what they're doing here, right? They're singing. What in the world? They're basically saying, this is the good life. I, this, I love life. Now, this does not mean we're a bunch of masochists who pursue pain. But it does mean when pain comes, as it will, in a very broken world, when persecution comes, as Jesus guarantees it will for the church, we can continue to say, life is good. I love life. And hopefully what will happen is people will look at you and say, what <laughs> are you talking about? Are you crazy? I have no idea how you're saying that. And it's not some naive dismissal of the realities of how hard things are at all. It's just a very different way of viewing it all. And so we need to have as Christians an ability to sing when we're bloodied and persecuted and things are hard. And so, so that's, that's what Peter's trying to give us here. You know, Jesus said, blessed are you. It's good for you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, what's harder than being falsely accused of something? And Jesus says, good for you. Blessed are you. God's favor settled on you. Luke 6, he puts it this way. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. How in the world can you see that, those circumstances, as blessed by God? Well, you learn to see everything very differently from God's perspective. According to his good news in Christ, you see the world differently. And what we have for us in this description of Christian character traits, it's what we do. I love that Kenny brought that out a few weeks ago. This is not some radical Christian living. I really get concerned. I think that tends to try to appeal to the younger people in the church. Radical. Let's live radical, cutting-edge lives. Well, actually, 
living the way that we're called to in this passage is just super normal. It's just really normal. It's just the way it is for Christians. It's not some upper echelon of Christian living. Oh, it's just discipleship. It's being like Jesus, following Jesus, depending on Jesus. It's a normal Christian life. It's, it's the way it is for us. That's what he calls us to. But please realize that this is not some list of virtues or ethical directives disconnected from God's amazing, gracious, supernatural work for us in Christ. We've got to stay anchored to the anchor verse of chapter 1, verse 3. So just flip one page back and look at 1, 3. Who are these people who live in such bizarre ways from a worldly standpoint? Verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father, 1, 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So God's done this. So these are commands connected to Christ and who he is and what he's done for those who are now new creatures in Christ. These are commands for those born again who are freed from sin, freed from the penalty of sin by grace through faith in Jesus. Please, we've got to connect it to that anchor reality of who we are now or else this will be crushing burdens we heap upon you to be these ways somehow independent of being new creatures made new by the Spirit of God in Christ. It all starts by God's grace changing our hearts, leading to faith in Jesus. That's what this, this is for Christians. When he says all of you, he means for those of you here this morning who are new in Christ. If you're not, I love that you're here. Probably even more glad you're here than the people who are Christians. Because there's a desperate urgency for you to hear this. Because you need new life. You're one of the walking dead otherwise. From God's perspective, we find in the Bible. And so, so we're new creatures in Christ, born again to a living hope. And what else are we? Look at chapter 2. Look at chapter 2. Verse 5, what else are we? So we're individually new creatures in Christ. And then in 2.5, what do we find? We are what else? Living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we anchor all of these commands to Christian living in Christ himself and what he's done for us and who he's making us into. Please don't let this be marching orders for your moral improvement. (gasps) Don't let it be that. This is something that flows from God's gracious, miraculous work in us by grace through faith in Christ. And, but he's making us into the spiritual house. So we live as Christians because we're born again to a living hope and because he's made us a holy priesthood. He's done that by his divine power. 
Why else do we live this way? Before we get into the, the specifics of how it looks, let's not miss the purpose of this. Yes, it's so we can live out who we are, and as Paul says in Philippians 2, live up to what we've already attained, but it's also so that people will be drawn to the Savior, so that people who have no basis for accusing us, rather, they will see the power of God at work in us, and they'll be drawn to God because of that. Where am I getting that? I'm getting that from this very important point that we live as Christians so people are drawn to Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So that's what we're doing. When we seek to live this way, we're we're going to war against just fleshly, natural inclinations. No, we identify as now sojourners. This world's not our home. We're, We're heading somewhere to an eternal state and we abstain from just passions of our flesh which wage war against our souls. Why? Why? Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, what will happen in them? They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, on judgment day, instead of dying in their sins, They'll glorify God because your life was something God used to display the power of God in Christ that actually drew them to him. So they became people glorifying God on the day of judgment instead of being judged by God and condemned on the day of judgment. Wow, how we live is so much more than our lives. How we live becomes the backdrop of the gospel's proclamation and God's work of drawing people to himself. Daily Christian living is a profoundly evangelistic thing. So all these commands we've been studying these past few weeks, masters to to, uh, uh, servants to masters, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, way we respond to authority, all these commands aren't just so we have lives that are virtuous. It's so that our virtuous lives display God's power at work in us because of Jesus. That actually has a drawing effect for people to be drawn out of darkness into light. that's thrilling. See, our daily living is never disconnected from people coming to Christ. There's a profoundly evangelistic component to this. The the next thing I want us to think about is how easy it is to dismiss things as just cultural. So we live as Christians following God's ways, which are grounded in unchanging biblical truth. Peter is writing to us from 2,000 years ago. It is so easy to, to just say, oh, this ancient history book cannot have anything to say to 21st century educated, sophisticated people. Come on. That's not how it works. We're far, we've progressed. We've evolved past that. Politicians keep talking about their, their views evolving, right? I've evolved. Could you be going backwards? Is it possible that you've devolved in your views? No, it's always progress, right? Well, is it? Is there anything we can learn from ancient nomads? 
Well, here's what I find fascinating. As Peter's preaching through this, teaching through this, I was just stunned in Kenny's passage that he preached last week. Uh, when Peter is, is telling wives how to, to be godly, and far from being just sort of a, an expression of his culture in, the, in the, the first century, that really is pretty irrelevant to us today. No, you know what he does? He makes it even more wild from a common perspective. And look at what he says in chapter 3, verse 5. It's just amazing. Far from being just culturally bound and therefore irrelevant to us, what does he say in 3, 5? For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that's threatening. What? As if it's not hard enough to imagine something 2,000 years ago is relevant to us. He adds another 2,000 to it. Remember Sarah? A couple millennia ago, in some ways, couldn't be more different than you. Remember how she was and emulate her conduct. What? That is not how we sophisticated modern people think. What am I going to learn from some toothless nomad 4,000 years ago? Well, God says a lot. And let's not fall into what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, that we always assume newer is better and we're always the newer. We've got a lot to learn from very old ways of thinking because God's truths are timeless. Yes, it's always expressed in particular times and cultures and we need to do the hard work of saying, well, what does it mean to be faithful to these enduring principles in my 21st century Southern California culture? But it doesn't mean we chuck the enduring principles because they're taught in cultural contexts. No, it just means they need to be understood in those contexts and applied in ours. These are timeless truths. When he says all of you in this morning's passage, just moves right into right now. He means for us, that's the power of God's word. It's been changing me for decades. And I know for some of you too. So, so these are grounded in God's unchanging ways. But let's get to the heart of this in verse eight. We live as Christians by being these things, these seven things, Six, we get to another later. That's why I was thinking seven. I know A through F is six. Um, not really, but uh, so please, it's so easy to see this as a grocery list of virtues to observe without letting, as I said, them land on you. Please, I believe that, that one or two or four or all of these are, are attitudes God wants to bring into your heart like never before this morning. I, it, you can, it could be suffocating as a preacher to think that I somehow need to connect the dots for everybody here. I'm so glad the Holy Spirit can do exactly that. And that's what I'm praying he does for you, that there, there's things on this list that he wants to just have invade your heart so it invades your marriage or your workplace or your neighborhood or your family situation, your extended family situation, your past you need to come to terms with, disappointments in your life, anxieties, challenges, depression, 
whatever it is. I think God wants to invade this, uh, a disdain for the church, whatever it is. I pray God blasts through and does a great work in us. Well, let's consider these one at a time then. First thing I want you to notice about these these attributes, unified in mind, the ones we find in verse 8, sympathetic, tender, uh, loving, tenderhearted, humble, blessing to those who mistreat you, which means rejecting evil and seeking peace, as he quotes Psalm 34. Notice all, all of those things are attitudes. They're uh, your heart's place, uh, your, your attitude, your perspective, your disposition, your feelings. These are very feelings commands. And this really goes at the heart of a very unhelpful way of thinking, an unbiblical way of thinking about ourselves that I think we've been taught from from, uh, bad versions of psychology and taught by ways of thinking that teach us that there are systems in place that determine us and we have no control over them or what I've learned about my temperament and that's just how I am or my experience or my background that now has determined me and statistically say this is where I invariably will be and become And, and we have all these ideas that we're nothing but victims to external circumstances and I can't really be held responsible for my attitude and at least I'm being real. (laughs) Yeah, a real jerk. You've given yourself permission in the name of authenticity but see, these are attitudes. You can't lean on, well, I'm an extrovert so don't expect me to be gentle or I'm an introvert so don't expect me to move toward people. No, you, you can't just sort of get a pass from these attitudes. Realize that God wants you and enables you to avail yourself to his means of grace so your heart changes. That's where it's all got to start. Or this is just behavior management, which is not the Christian way of doing things. But think about these attitudes that are commanded out of which flow actions, no doubt about that. But it starts with the heart the attitude of the heart. And we're told to be unified, to be in harmony with one another, literally to be like-minded, which does not mean uniformity where we're all the same in our dress and habits and opinions and preferences and musical tastes and ways we talk. And No, there's a wonderful God-intended diversity in the midst of the unity. And when you start to lose that individual in the midst of the unity, it becomes cult-like. That's not what we're after, but we are after a like-mindedness on the big stuff, on the main stuff, so that even sometimes preferences and, and inclinations and opinions get put aside for something bigger. The main goal, glorifying Christ with our lives, living in God-glorifying ways, living in ways that's for the good of others means we put our personal preferences and rights to the side and at times don't make them a priority for ourselves. There's a like-mindedness, a working together, a submissive consideration of one another. It's put this way by God in Philippians 2. Paul says, complete my joy By being of the same mind. You church that I care desperately about, and I do care desperately about this church, hear those words. Be of the same mind. Have a like-mindedness on the foundational big stuff so that all the petty stuff gets pushed to the side when need be. Have Have a central goal that makes everything else peripheral compared to that goal of moving together. 
make my joy. His joy was somehow wrapped up in that. And then we're told to be sympathetic, literally to suffer with. Sim, with, the word pathos from Jesus, passion, right? To suffer with, to suffer alongside, to bear the burdens of others, to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and grieve with those who grieve as if their burdens were actually your burdens. And their joys are your joys and their good is no different than if it were your good. And so there's no envy and no comparison. We rejoice together and we grieve together. Be sympathetic, suffer alongside one another and be loving. uh, he, He says loving like brothers. Brotherly love, Philadelphia, right? This, the city of brotherly love. Have love that's more than just friends, acquaintances, associates, work partners. No, have it be like brothers. My brother, there were times I wanted to kill my brother, and that's not hyperbole. There were times I tried to kill my brother, But because he was two years older and had reached puberty first, I wasn't successful. There was blood. Kids in the neighborhood would run when he and my brother and I would start going at it and fighting. And and so, but we're brothers. If you added up all the stuff we've said to each other over the years that's hurtful, you would assume there's no way we could have a relationship. One time I was so angry he wouldn't come play basketball with me because he wanted to make, draw a map of the island he wanted to live on someday. And I just wanted to go play basketball. And he wouldn't do it. And I harped on him for hours and he finally wouldn't. So he mad at me and he smashed my skateboard against a brick wall and broke it. And so I kicked his big sousaphone, cracked it. We, we just went, we fought like madmen. And we're brothers. We're brothers. It hasn't changed at all. And there have been times we've just had to say, all right, let's reboot. Let's start over. Isn't that great? If we could just apply that game you played when you were a kid in the street, do over. Do what we just got to have do overs, right? Do over. I wasn't ready. Thought a car was coming. Do over. I wasn't a do-over. You just flubbed it. No, no, we, we, we've got to have these brotherly love connections that transcend getting miffed or offended or hurt and then just walking away. Have a brotherly love for one another, he says. Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. There's a goodness. It's the good life when brothers dwell in unity. And that doesn't mean there's no conflict doesn't mean there's not disappointment and deep hurt sometimes. It's just we're family. We're family. So we're not flaky, hopefully. We hang in there. We're tenderhearted. We're literally from the guts toward people. We're we're compassionate. We feel deeply for others. It's like the sympathy idea. It's, It's you feel for them from your guts. It's not superficial. This is how it's put in Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Same word. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So it means you have deep feelings of concern and it leads to action. And then be humble. Be, uh, be humble-minded. Have an estimation of yourself in light of the fact that you're a frail creature made out of dust just like everybody else. 
Proverbs 22.2, the rich and the poor meet together. Really, when? In creation. The Lord's the maker of them all. That means Bill Gates and a little girl in a Dalit caste in India in a slum right now are completely equal before God. And so we have a humility that never puts ourselves above others because of accomplishments or lack of certain sins we've committed in our lives. No, there's a humility and a submissiveness that flows from that. And now we move with point F to not just how we treat one another in the church, but how we respond to those outside the church who persecute us. It continues to have implications for when we're offended and hurt and opposed within the church, but it now, I think, moves primarily to thinking about opposition from without and its implication for that. And it means, as we saw in the Psalm 34 quotation, it means we become peacemakers. We reject evil. We don't return evil for evil, but good for evil. Talk about a very different way of living than what comes naturally. You know, this idea that if it comes naturally, it must be right. Oh, there's a whole lot coming really naturally for me that is not right. God makes us so that we live according to the natures he created us to express. And we're to be a blessing to those who mistreat us. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says. And and please, we've had a lot of teaching on this, this humble, submissive, returning good for evil attitude toward government, toward leaders, even when there's tyrants. Uh, But... Please don't think that means there isn't a place for fighting for justice. We need Wilberforces to be raised up in the church to oppose injustice, to hate it, to war against it, especially for the least and most helpless among us, like the unborn, for instance, who have no voice of their own. We need people to fight for justice at every level. And there's even a place for you individually to appeal to a court of law the way Paul does, according to his Roman citizenship. So don't hear all of this submissive humility before even oppressive leaders as resignation. No, we need Bonhoeffers and Wilberforces. But it does mean when there's a personal affront, when there's opposition among the people of God, because especially of our proclamation of Christ, that is a tremendous opportunity to sing praises in prison, to return good for the evil we're receiving and display that power of the gospel that's freed us to be like Jesus, freed us to be forgiving. The one who said as he's being murdered, Father, forgive them, that needs to describe us. When we're attacked, when we're personally opposed, when we're even hated, we are able to be like Jesus because he's freed us as new creatures in Christ. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Refuse to do evil. And please realize the the very best way we can bless is by pointing people to Christ, the one who is the source of all blessing. Actually, people see blessing and evangelism as two very different things. No, proclaiming the good, good news that leads to the good life God has comes through Jesus. Yes, kindness and and, and kind things and unselfish giving and in all sorts of ways that typify our life. Yes, but the best thing you could bless someone with or give them is Jesus through the proclaimed gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so let's not lose that central way we are to bless. And when we realize this, what happens is an amazing blessing we experience. We experience the good life. The blessing of God, the favor of God, the kindness of God. It's possible to read this passage about obtaining a blessing here that we see uh, as something that is a sure thing in the future, in eternity. I think this is, this is pointing to a blessing we receive now on the way to the ultimate blessing, a daily blessing, a blessing in our lives that we're able to experience today a favor of God. It really matters how you live. When you live in God's ways, resting in his grace and depending on his power and yielding to the work of the spirit and the means of grace in our lives like worship in the word and prayer and fellowship, you can actually be freed to live in a way that leads to the good life in every circumstance. In all the circumstances, there's a blessing there's, there's love, there's life, there's goodness to our lives that come from our attitudes, from our decisions, from our daily actions. Look at this chart from Grudem's commentary on 1 Peter. Look at just in 1 Peter. We could look at hundreds and hundreds of, of right conduct that leads to blessing in our lives, this life, and this is just 1 Peter. Loving Christ, unutterable joy. Continuing faith, more benefits of salvation, holy life with fear, avoiding God's fatherly discipline, partaking of spiritual milk, growing up towards salvation, trusting God and doing right while suffering, God's approval, submitting to husbands, husbands one for Christ, living considerably with lives, prayers not hindered, enduring reproach for Christ. We find the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us, casting our cares upon him. Implied he'll care for us, resist the devil, God restore and establish and strengthen you. This is not just future eternal hope. This is right now, today. Live this way and God's blessing will come in your life. This isn't some health, wealth, name it, claim it. God likes you more because you do these things. Earn it, merit it, prove it. No, remember, we start with being made new creatures. But it really matters how you live. It really matters the attitude you set about having. It makes huge difference for others and for yourself. There's a wonderful blessing and a goodness to life that can be yours when you walk in God's ways. And there's a, a badness and a lack of life and a lack of blessing when you just go your own way. Independent of God, it really matters how you live today. It makes a huge difference. And please realize that this all is because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and because we want to continue and increase in that tasting and seeing the Lord is good. We see and taste and experience he's good in Christ. And we keep that going. We, we are driven by a hunger to know the God we've come to be satisfied in and want to be satisfied even more. So please, ask God today how he wants to invade your life and all your relationships. Look, one of the reasons we emphasize church membership here at Grace and being in a small group where you're really in each other's lives like grace groups is because you can't really do this the way God intends to the depth he wants unless you're committed in these relationships. Where it's not just 24-hour fitness mentality about the church, but but commitment, 
that, that you're part of something, that you don't flake out and leave when it gets hard. No, it's in the difficulty often God wants to do his deepest work in you. And so if we can treat enemies, those who hate us, so the Muslim terrorist, yes, we want to do everything we can to stop and oppose, but on a very heartfelt level, there should be a posture of forgiveness, a posture of humility. And so most certainly among the people of God, when we hurt one another, when we offend one another, when, when we are at odds, we are called to something so grand and glorious and bigger than ourselves. And when we're freed up from what comes naturally in the world's economy, we can actually live like the one who saved us in the first place. And be a source of drawing people to him. Isn't that really exciting? To be part of something like that. That is a reason to get up in the morning. Father, help us to get up in the morning and to continue today um, trusting you and your word that has this timelessness to it. Lord, help us to depend on you, to depend on your work. For those here this morning who've never truly tasted and seen your good, I pray that right now there would be an experience of you as the Spirit works where they see the beauty of Jesus who he is and what he's done, and that, that tasting and seeing, that experience of you would be undeniable, and that this would be the day they trust Jesus, turn from sin and trust Jesus. For those of us who, who did come in here in a relationship with you, but so in need of transforming work because you're good, I pray, Lord, you would give us a very different definition of the good life then our culture, then the world naturally teaches us and our hearts will teach us as well if we don't listen to you. Help each of us, Lord, to take leaps and bounds and maybe little steps today for some toward being like Jesus and depending on him more than ever. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.